G'day and welcome to the Constant Investor's weekly radio show, Talking Finance. This week, Australia's GDP busts out with 1.1% growth in the December quarter and the reporting season ends with the usual hits and misses and screams of pain and shouts of joy. Also, we've got a primer on momentum and value and look at what is the best strategy. Now, Warren Buffett and I are all about value, but an analyst at Morgan Stanley has investigated the matter and found that we're wrong. Momentum is the best investment strategy, or at least has been for a while. And if you're an investor in retailers, be afraid. Be very afraid. Amazon is coming. I've tracked down a full-time Amazon seller in Florida who explains why Aussie retailers are about to get hit by a truck with a smiling face on the side. But first, yesterday's GDP growth of 1.1% for the December quarter was above all but the most optimistic forecasts and a huge turnaround from September quarter's 0.5% drop. David Plank of ANZ explains what was behind it and what it means. Yes, we were at 1% for the quarter. I don't think a bounce back was a surprise. I think a soft number would have been more surprising than a strong number given how weak Q3 was. And I think we need to keep this in context. Q3 was negative 05 so... In the second half of last year, the economy didn't grow all that much, but it is pleasing that the weakness turned out to be reasonably temporary and uh, we, we had a reasonably strong bounce back in Q4. Drilling into the number, I mean, it seems to be pretty well across the board, particularly quite strong household consumption. Household consumption was strong, up 0.9% for the quarter, which was more than we thought. And we, we actually thought that was one area where there was potentially downside risk given the weakness in wages. Uh, and so to fund that increase in spending, households have had to dip, dip into their savings and reduce their savings rate. They're still saving, but not as much as they were before. So you have to call into question whether such strong consumption growth is sustainable, given how weak wages growth is. So what else did you learn in, out of the December quarter national accounts about the economy that was interesting to you? Well, we saw um, a rise in building sort of non-mining business investments, which I think wasn't pleasing. But I think in terms of the policy takeaways, I think you know activity is not going to be 1% a quarter for the rest of for 2017. So the strength in this quarter is a little exaggerated by the weakness last quarter. But I think the activity side of the economy still looks okay. But what these numbers continue to emphasise is how weak price pressures are. So unit labour costs, which are a key input into thinking about inflation because they, that's what drives a lot of the costs for business, uh, fell quite sharply in the quarter and, uh, and are now down 0.4% over the year. So there's just no inflationary pressures at all. So when you think about the inflation outlook, until we see it, you know, the hope for lift in wages and hope for lift in kind of core inflation is still a hope rather than a reality. But we seem to be getting the opposite of stagflation, which is we're getting low inflation and reasonable growth. But, and that's pretty good, isn't it? Well, what you'd like to see is strong productivity growth feeding into wages, but relative, strong wage growth, but relatively subdued unit labour costs. Instead, what we're seeing is very weak wages growth. So from a household income point of view, it's not a great story. So household incomes are under pressure. That's been true for a number of years. I think that remains the case. You know, a lot of people have pinned hope for recovery in household incomes off the back of the terms of trade boost. What I would say, and that's certainly what happened in the 2000s, what I would say at this time is that a number of the transmission mechanisms from the terms of trade lift to household incomes are blocked. You know, wage growth, I think, is not going to be anywhere near what it was in the 2000s. Uh, we're not seeing a recycling of the revenues via lower taxes. If anything, taxes are going to have to go up at the federal level, at least, given 
the pressures the federal government's under, and and I don't think we're going to see strong lifts in government spending. So the kind of transmission mechanism from the terms of trade boost to households isn't there this time. So I think we're going to get a very different situation this time around than we had in the 2000s. What is blocking it? I think health of or lack of at the, at the federal level is blocking it. I mean, the government gave a lot of the um, boost to its revenue back last time in, in tax cuts, which probably turned out to be unsustainable, so it's not going to do it this time. Because of global inflation is low, inflation expectations are low, productivity is low, businesses are, are reluctant to pay higher wages, which is understandable, and I think households are reluctant to demand them given uncertainty about the outlook for jobs and so on. So I think there's a number of factors that are contributing to this uh, lack of recycling of higher income from the terms of trade. And the other thing we saw today, of course, was the um, house prices for February, another strong rise. So there's no sign of any diminution in the uh, housing boom, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Yes, and it was very much a Sydney and Melbourne story. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I mean, they were up, you know, Sydney house prices up 19% over the year to February. So, you know, people who own a house are getting the benefit of low rates and the, and the feed through for that into house prices and probably strong immigration is contributing to that as well. That's a constraint for the RBA. Obviously, they're going to be concerned about that. You know, there's other implications in, that stem from that. Uh, what I would say is that probably some of the spending we saw in Q4 was probably a wealth effect from, from housing, so there's probably some of that coming through as well. So on balance, low inflation, reasonable growth, or at least a bounce back in growth for the time being, very strong house prices. What's the net impact on interest rates going to be? Well, we've got them on, the RBA on hold for an extended period, and I think that's uh, likely to continue. And I think what's driving that is the activity is sort of okay, but not stellar. It's not, it's not as though growth is above trend. So the unemployment rate is going to be relatively stable around current levels. We think wage growth probably bottoms and starts to pick up a little bit in 2017, but certainly some of the indicators would suggest that, but they're not yet translating into wages. So wages, are, even with that, are going to remain pretty low. So there's going to be no inflation pressures, so the RBA is on hold. You know, if anything, if they do anything, I think, in the next 18 months, it's cut again. But given what's happening on the house price side and the concerns they've got about financial stability that stem from that, obviously there's a very high hurdle rate for further rate cuts. But if the bank does anything in the next 18 months, um, which is not what we expect, we expect them to be on hold, uh, then I think a cut is still more likely than a hike. When you say an extended period, you mean 18 months, possibly even longer? Well, our forecasts go at the end of 2018 and we've got them on hold for that period. So, yes, for an extended period. Now for the reporting season. It's easy to get lost in all the individual stories, good and bad, but what's the overall picture? Did Australia's listed companies do well or not? Shane Oliver of AMP has been watching this stuff for many years. On balance, I'd have to say it was good because we've seen confirmation that the overall profits of the market have gone from two years of going backwards, i.e. falling profits, to seeing profits rise again. And, you know, of course, that's largely driven by the resources sector, but by the same token, we are seeing profit growth that the median company or even industrials are seeing profit growth. But overall, I'd say it's a good reporting season. If you take out the commodities, the resources companies, what do you get? Well, basically, if you look at the numbers, say for this financial year, we're on track for profits to be up about 19%. At the start of the reporting season, that was around 17%. So there's been, a, if anything, a bit of an upgrade as we've gone through the reporting season. 
But most of that rebound in profit growth from falling profits over the last two financial years is due to the resources sector. So resource profits are going to be up about 150%. And if anything, the BHPs and the Rios and so on, they surprised on the upside. On the rest of the market, called the non-resources markets, profit growth is a lot more modest. It's down around 5%. For the industrials, excluding the banks, it's around 4%. And so that's relatively modest growth. But by the same token, they've been seeing modest growth for some time now. So the industrial part of the economy is still reflecting a relatively constrained growth in the overall economy, but the big turnaround has been driven by the resources side. Last two years it was on the downside, this year it's going to be on the up, on the upside. And what the market tends to focus on is the extent to which they've hit or missed their guidance or their forecasts, uh, which based on the guidance. So what's that been? What's that performance been like? Well, interestingly, um, the overall results weren't that out of line with previous reporting seasons. On my count, we had 45% of companies report above expectations. The norm is about 44%. So the upside surprise was relatively modest, mainly in the resources side. Industrials were sort of um, in line with expectations. We also saw about 25% of companies surprised on the downside which is a little bit above the last couple of years. So there was a bit more downside surprise there. And and I think that uh, all showed up in market reactions. If companies surprised on the upside, I think average gain was about 3%, yeah, quite a big uh, boost. But by the same token, if companies surprised on the downside, you were seeing declines of 3% or in some cases a lot more. So the market had priced in expectations quite closely. And if they were not messy on the upside or the downside, you'd see quite a big reaction through this reporting season, but there was, there was quite a few companies that got severely punished. But in aggregate, you also saw this divergence between the larger cap stocks, not just the large resources stocks, but large cap stocks generally doing better than small cap stocks. And the small caps universe was a little bit softer this time around. But overall, results, individual company level were sort of, were not too bad, but there wasn't a great degree of upside surprise there. The upside surprise largely came in the large cap. I often wonder why any company surprises the market. It's in their hands as to what guidance they provide and when they provide it. That's right. The rules are basically that if you're going to diverge from market expectations and get a guide from that from the various stockbrokers and what they're thinking, then you should inform the market. Um, So I am a little bit surprised that you get these sort of reactions from time to time. Maybe it's because I mean, it could be that companies are not keeping the market informed. Alternatively, it could be that the analysts' expectations aren't necessarily a good guide to what the market overall is factoring in because in Australia, we've only got uh, you know, maximum 20 analysts for each stock, um, less for the small caps, but their views aren't necessarily reflected in all individual investors. So that could be another factor which uh, results in these sort of reactions. Another suggestion is that uh, computerised trading is playing some sort of role in exaggerating the uh, the moves after the results happen, but it's hard to prove that one. Do you think that the market has been particularly merciless this year? Uh, well, some companies would probably feel that way. That, that some companies saw massive falls in their share price if they didn't deliver according to expectations. And a possible explanation for that is also that... Uh, we have seen a big run-up in the Aussie share market from where it was, say, 12 months ago, back in February of 20, 
16, the Aussie market had fallen quite, had had a 20% fall. You know, we're in a bit of a hole. So we've had a huge rebound in the Aussie market, up pushing up towards the 5.7 sort of level on the index. Um, and a lot of companies got dragged along in that, even you know, regardless of how well they were performing. So consequently, when companies didn't deliver, they got hit quite, quite hard. If the market hadn't had that huge run-up, which was around 11 12%, for example, since the uh, November election in the US, if the market hadn't had that huge run up, then you wouldn't have seen, may not have seen such a severe reaction for companies that underperformed. You mentioned small caps before. It's been quite noticeable that there's been a shift in the last three to six months away from small caps towards large caps, which is kind of the reverse of what had been previously going on. Do you think that's a result of uh, disappointing results or something else? I think at the core is a perception that the global economy is doing better. So it's the large caps that tend to have a greater global exposure. Obviously, the resources companies are at the forefront there. And so as expectations improved regarding, say, China in particular, and the commodity prices went up, then that affected the resources stocks, which are sort of in the large cap universe. And then in the industrials, it's a similar sort of thing. If you're an Australian industrial company with operations in the US, you know, Ball, for example, the news has been such that the US economy has been looking healthier, likewise, in Europe. And so those large-cap companies have benefited from that. So we, we did go through an extended period there where the small-cap part of the market outperformed the large-cap part of the market, and that reflected, I think, more difficult conditions internationally. Now we're seeing a reverse of that, basically, as global conditions improved. That benefited the large-cap stocks because they have greater global exposure. Now, Warren Buffett always tells us to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. In other words, to look for good value. By implication, that means momentum is for sheep, meek followers of the herd. Well, actually, maybe the sheep are smart. Stephen Yee of Morgan Stanley has done some detailed quantitative work and found that momentum works. So I started by asking him to explain what he means by momentum. What we found is the best measure of price momentum in Australia is 12 months total return, but excluding the last month. The reason why I exclude the last month is because historically there's a tendency on a one-month basis to mean revert. So what that means is that the best momentum signal is a stock that has been trending upwards over the last 12 months, um, but as recently over the last month seen a bit of a dip. And conversely, a stock with poor momentum is one that has been trending down over the last 12 months, but has more recently moved upwards. Is there an amount by which they need to have trended upwards or downwards in order to qualify as a momentum stock? No, that type of number is variable depending on the actual uh, movements within the market. The momentum factor itself is cross-sectional. So it does look at the winners in the market versus the losers rather than uh, which stocks have turned up or down. They're similar but somewhat different in, in many ways. So instead of buying the stocks that have gone up 20%, for example, we look at the stocks that have gone up more than peers. So that cutoff, as it were, is, is variable and depends on what the market is doing at that particular time. Could you give us an example of a momentum stock? The momentum stocks right now happen to be uh, heavily concentrated within the resources sector. For example, Blue Scope, BHP Rio, Fortescue, Mineral Resources, South 32 are all examples of momentum stocks that are, that are working within the market. Stocks with negative momentum, last time we've looked at it, include things like Blackmores, it includes things like Woolworths, includes things like uh, HealthScope. The reason why we focus on momentum in the report 
So what we've done is we've recently published a paper that looks at all these different factors within the Australian equity market and how they've worked since 1990 in generating our performance across various uh, environments. And what we found is that momentum uh, was at the top of the list for the most effective quantitative strategy in Australia with a strategy whereby you buy the top 20% of stocks by price momentum and short the bottom 20% of stocks by price momentum, generating an information ratio of 0.92 since 1990 to 2016. What was more interesting and what we found was that this strategy actually worked better this decade than in preceding decades with a momentum strategy generating information ratio of 1.38. Now, by contrast, what we found was that value factors were surprisingly disappointing with buying stocks with the cheapest PEs across the ASX 200 and selling stocks with the highest PEs only generating information ratio of roughly around 0.2 over the same period. Can you tell us just briefly what that ratio refers to? The information ratio is effectively the outperformance um, against the ASX 200 divided by the tracking error. Uh, effective, what that means is the, the amount of risk you're taking against the benchmark. And that's calculated as the standard deviation of your excess returns. So effectively, the information ratio is a measure of risk-adjusted performance. It's how much you're outperforming the benchmark given the risk that you're taking against the benchmark. Give us those numbers again for momentum and value. Uh, it's 1.38 for momentum this decade, and for value of the longer term period from 1990 to 2016, we've only seen an information ratio of 0.21. And in fact, value, which we define as or one measure of value is forward price to earnings, we've actually found that strategy to actually have a negative information ratio this decade of negative 0.18. Now, there are two reasons for this. One reason is that it actually lies within the resources space. In many cases, forward PEs have a history of being somewhat misleading within that space. Often what happens is the market actually factors in the rise in commodity prices far more quickly than what is factored in the earnings estimated on the sell side. Um, So when a PE is high for a resources company, it often means that the commodity prices are rising, the market is pricing this in, and the analyst estimates are still based on the old commodity price assumption and yet to be revised up. And so what this leads to is a situation where you actually have high PEs within resources space outperform lower PEs as those other stocks with improving commodity drivers on the top line. Because the analysts have fallen behind. They haven't got it right. Exactly. Especially within the resource space, given how volatile the commodity prices can be, there is a definitely a strong lagging effect within that. So in fact, within the resources, we found that one is better off buying on high PEs and selling on low PEs based on the historical analysis of these strategies. The other reason why PEs we've found have not worked as well is within the small to mid-cap space, and that is because there are many companies within that space that have severely changing growth prospects. So the reason why a simple price-to-earnings strategy does not apply as much to, for example, growth companies is actually due to calculation of price-to-earnings itself. A company is more than just next year's earnings or even the year after. Now, why PEs are shorthand because earnings are a good proxy for future earnings, but for many growth stocks, earnings can change drastically year over year, and the measure that we use on price to earnings to gauge value aren't actually as accurate in gauging the value of those growth companies. So over the past 10 years, the best thing to do is to buy stocks that have been going up, because they're more likely to keep going up. <laughs> I know that sounds very simple, but in fact, um, momentum strategies have worked particularly well in Australia, and the data shows that these sort of strategies continue to do quite well. There are reasons why momentum works well. Uh, One is that it can be self-fulfilling. For stocks within the small to mid-cap space, whenever these stocks rally significantly, they start to actually attract a lot of attention of the large 
funds that previously weren't able to actually look at these stocks. And especially given the market today where you're not seeing that much growth within the top 50 stocks, that sort of momentum can drive a sort of self-fulfilling type of um, effect. And of course, conversely, when stocks fall too much, a lot of the key mutual funds will need to sell it. And you're actually seeing that self-perpetuation of that as well. The other reason why we think momentum works quite well is unlike value where when more money goes into value strategies, the actual value effect or the ability to outperform by buying cheap and selling expensive starts to diminish over time. Momentum, on the other hand, is actually a self-perpetuating strategy whereby the more people who actually apply this strategy to their portfolio tend to have that perpetuate over time. The last reason why we find momentum works well, and this is not globally, this is actually more of an Australia-specific thing. For example, momentum works terribly in Japan. It works poorly in, in the U.S., it works really well in Australia, and one of the reasons we found was that it actually has a correlation. The momentum effect has a high correlation with what is known as the Hofstede cultural differences. In Australia, uh, a Hofstede is a person who created all these scoring mechanisms for different cultures around the world, and there's actually a relationship between momentum effect and what is known as individualism within a particular, particular society. When a society is highly unindividualistic, what happens is that herding behavior occurs quite quickly and thus the momentum effect does not work as well. Keep in mind, momentum effect works quite well when people underreact to information that's coming to the market. For example, a company's prospects may have increased 50% based on a particular news coming out, but the stock may have only rallied 10%. And momentum actually says, well, if it's rallied 10%, there's probably some further to go. And it captures a lot of that outperformance based on the underreaction. And so one hypothesis is that countries with high individualism scores on this Hofstede scale tend to underreact to information, tend to have more anchoring bias, uh, which is a behavioural anomaly, and that leads to perpetuation of this momentum premium. That is so interesting. (laughs) Australia doesn't have as much of a herd mentality as other countries. That's true, yeah. And because of that, momentum strategy actually works quite well. Finally, evidence is growing that Amazon is coming to Australia this year. This week we had stories emerge that they've appointed real estate agents to find warehouse sites. One of the unique things about this company is that there are a lot of businesses that sell only on Amazon. Stuff goes straight from Chinese factories to the Amazon warehouse and then to the end customers. And one of these is Adam Hudson, an Australian based in Florida. I sell using what's called their FBA program, which stands for Fulfillment by Amazon. And I'm what's called a third-party seller, which means I have my own brand. I own the inventory and I have it shipped directly from my manufacturer in China into Amazon's warehouses around the world. Amazon sells the products on their site and then they pick, pack and ship the products for me as well as run the site and find the customers. So basically, I'm responsible for creating the brand and getting them into Amazon's warehouses. And what are the products? I sell homewares products, so, you know, all types of different things. They get sold everywhere. It's your brand that goes on them? It is my brand, yeah. I sell sort of a high-end brand. There's about 2 million independent Amazon sellers, third-party sellers like me, which is what's going to be quite interesting when it comes to Australia later this year. All we have to do to sell to Australians is send our inventory from China into the Australian fulfillment centres and Australians are going to see a whole bunch of new brands that they've never seen before, which I think is quite exciting for the consumers down there. So tell us what happens when they do come down under. Well, I think you'll see a big push for their Amazon Prime program. I've been selling on Amazon in the US and living predominantly in the US for the last five years. 
and Prime is basically their membership where you pay $100 a year. And for that, you get free two-day shipping on most items on Amazon, as well as a whole bunch of other things such as you know, like they have their own Amazon Prime TV, you get heavily discounted everyday items. Amazon's play is to get people onto their Prime program because they know that once they're on Prime and they can get stuff delivered free, people start buying more and more and more, which is they have about 60 million Prime members here in the US paying them for the right to shop on the site, which is why they now account for one in every $2 of online retail spending in America. How much of Amazon's output is from third-party suppliers like you? To what extent will that have an impact on Australia? I don't know the exact number on what we account for as an overall number, but in terms of the impact on Australia, if I was an Australian retailer, I'd be quite nervous right now because if you think of things like BCF, you know, that sell you know, boating, camping, fishing supplies, basically, among other things, there are sellers here in the US that specialise just in tents or specialise just in fishing lures and specialise just in camping lights. Those brands are all going to become private label sellers here in the US will be available to Australian consumers. And I sort of think of it as death by a thousand paper cuts because you're going to have extremely competent US and European sellers now able to easily sell to Australian consumers using Amazon's platform. And because nobody in that supply chain is retail, there's no retail space being rented. They come with a credibility of Amazon and Amazon's DNA is just so far ahead when it comes to e-commerce than pretty much anybody that I know, especially when you consider what they're doing in AI and robotics and all the other things that are driving their business. What are they doing in AI and robotics? They already have something like 40,000 robots in their warehouses in the US working and things like their Alexa, which is the you know the listening device is what it really is, but it's a, a device that people ask a question of it, say, hey, Alexa, you know, what's the weather in Los Angeles today? What it's also doing is collecting a huge amount of data, every discussion that's going on in the household is being recorded and ads are being you know, going to be served to those people based on what their discussions are, what they're buying. It's sort of a Trojan horse and, and Amazon's selling it pretty much for what it costs them, not much over, to their prime members to get it into their households for all that sort of stuff. So they're a very, very intelligent company doing some pretty interesting stuff. People are allowing themselves to be eavesdropped on by Amazon all the time. Exactly. Yeah, well, I don't know how many consumers realise... <laughs> Are people ordering from Amazon through Alexa, just walking into the house and saying, I'd like to buy, you know, whatever? They have had buttons here for a while, like a, a little device on a keychain for things like, you know, nappies and toilet paper and stuff. And rather than having to go to Amazon, you just push the button and it automatically sends that those units to your house, whatever you've preset in your account, so that people can do that from anywhere where they are, which is really interesting technology. So they're doing stuff very handy. That'd be great if you're on the toilet and you've run out. You can push the button on your keychain. That's great. Exactly. Pretty soon I'll drop it off by helicopter in a few minutes. They did do their first commercial drone delivery in the UK in December, 13 minutes from the time the person clicked buy to the time it was on their back lawn, which is quite remarkable. They are now doing commercial drone deliveries, are they? In the UK. Not in the US yet, but in the UK they started in December. And uh, that, I think, is, is, a, is a real tipping point. In the US, online retail is a $300 billion market, but by 2030, it will be a $1.5 trillion market. So that speaks to the big disruption of retail and the anticipation of money moving from brick and mortar over 
to online. And I think one of the big trigger points is going to be drones because when people can get stuff dropped off in 13 or 15 minutes, it's going to be a game changer for brick and mortar retail. They just can't compete with that. I understand Amazon is going into brick and mortar retail itself. It is in a small way. It's really about visibility. So they have small stores that stock a select range of goods. That's like their prime stores. And then they have Amazon Fresh, which is their grocery. They're testing the store that has the uh, no credit card or anything. You just walk in, you put your stuff in your trolley and you walk out and it's all linked through your mobile phone. And uh, that's pretty interesting technology. But their other stores are really showcasing things like the Amazon Echo and their phones and the other things that they, they sell at a very deep discount to get people to be Prime members. They are the dominant online retailer, aren't they? They are absolutely dominant. They are so far ahead of everybody else. There's really no other retailer of any kind in the world that is anywhere on drones other than 7-Eleven, who's done a lot of work in that area. But there's almost no retailers that are anywhere on drones, anywhere on artificial intelligence from a retail point of view, and anywhere on automation to the degree that Amazon is. But what's interesting is 10 years ago, Amazon was worth about 5% of the top 10 US retailers combined, so Nordstrom, Sears, and all those top 10, they were worth about 5% of their combined value. Today, they're worth more than all of those 10 combined. That's how much they've grown in just a single decade. Happy birthday, Lou Reed, who would have been 75 today. Let's just put on our aviator sunglasses and take a walk on the wild side with Lou. Holly came from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side Thanks to the team and to ISM Studios for the music And I'll see you on Saturday when I'll give you a detailed rundown of Tuesday night's amazing Magellan Dinner for 2000, hosted by Hamish Douglas, including an interview with Hamish and a copy of his 90-minute presentation. (laughs) 